Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Elaine Fisher shares with us a message titled, Where Do You Stand? We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. All right, well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to get there in a second. Um, But I was thinking, we're in this series about spiritual growth, and so I was thinking, you know, there's some of us that um, embrace spiritual growth, and then there's some of us that um, go through it with a little bit more resistance. And so I've always been one that embraced it. And so when I was in youth group, they said Pastor Tim's twin brother is Preston. Well, Preston was my youth pastor. He has been um, in my family for as long as I can remember, and so he's been one of those people that has poured into me. Well, he was my youth pastor, and we started off to a great start. You know, when we started Gateway, if you don't know, my dad is Pastor Robert Morris of Gateway Church, and so we started Gateway when I was nine years old, and Preston was one of the first staff members. And so Preston comes in, and he's the youth pastor, and at the time, I think I was in fourth grade, and youth was fifth through twelfth grade. Well, when summer came and I got to graduate to start youth, they decided, they heard the Lord, that youth was now going to be 6th through 12th grade. So 5th grade, I complete it. I'm so proud of myself. Get to summer. I'm about to join youth group, and they heard the Lord, and it's 7th through 12th grade. Finally, they had to let me in because he can't have a youth group of only 12th graders. And so they finally let me in. And I personally believed that I was there to help him out. Like, I, I really thought I was God's gift to Preston. Um, you know, he's a new, young youth pastor. So here I am. I'm going to help him out, right? And so there's this youth, pa- or youth leader that um, I just, I didn't like him. Um, I don't know why. I couldn't give you a million reasons or anything. I just didn't like him. And so I, here's my opportunity to help Pastor Preston out. I mean, he's new, he's young, he doesn't understand how to be a youth. I obviously do, so um, let me help him out. So I just boldly walk up to this youth leader, and I said, hey, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all your time and your service. Thank you for loving on our generation. We just so appreciate all that you do for us. And I said, hey, but we've been praying. We, we've been praying. And um, we just feel like we need to take the youth in a new direction. And so we just don't think your service is really needed anymore. So I just wanted to say um, thank you so much, but tonight is going to be your last night. I'm helping Preston out. Little did I know that Pastor Preston was standing just a few feet from me and heard the entire thing, the entire thing. And so he then had to tell the guy that I didn't have that authority and that he could stay, and he had to tell me that I didn't have that authority and he could stay. And I was laughing about this, and if you go to Gateway, this has now become a sermon illustration because if you're a PK, everything is a sermon illustration that you do. And so um, Pastor Preston's used this. My dad uses it all the time. Everyone does. But we were all laughing about it one time, and Preston started laughing a little harder, and I said, what? And he said, well, you don't know it, but that night I actually was going to tell him he could no longer be a youth leader. (laughs) But you stepped in, and so then I had to keep him for like another month just to teach you a lesson. And so we laugh about it now, but I started to think how often we do that with God. We think we're here to help God out. He's new. He's inexperienced to be in God. So, you know, we'll just help him out a little bit. And what we don't realize is our intervening, our interjection actually prolongs the situation. And so I'm here to tell you as a 
friend that God wants to do something in us. And he wants us to grow spiritually. And so I just wanted to open the word of God and look at what it would mean to embrace the spiritual growth, the journey of it, so we don't prolong journeys. Does that make sense? Um, So I told you I have three children. And before the children are born, I typically go through a season with the Lord where I ask him what I should do. And um, before Kate was born, I felt like he told me to open the word of God every time I wanted to open a social media app. Well, I completed the whole Bible in less than three months. Um, That is not a testament to how fast of a reader I am. That is a full testament of how addicted I was to social media. So then I'm pregnant with Preston. I said, okay, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I want, I have a study Bible. He said, I want you to read the verse, but I want you to read everything, like all the study notes that go along with the verse. And I immediately remember telling the Lord, yeah, so I'm not going to be able to do as much as I did last time. Like you're asking me to read a lot. And he was like, yeah. See, last time was about quantity, but this time's about quality. And you're going to need both in a, in a good relationship. And so I started to read, and I got to this verse in Luke 6. And um, I've kept reading. I need to just tell you that so you don't pray for me. But um, I just got stuck on this verse. And so in Luke 6, verse 17, I just want to read it to you, and we're going to dive into it. It says, when they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. I titled this morning's message, Where Do You Stand? And here's why, because when I read this scripture, I immediately had this image pop into my head. And if I had a whiteboard up here, I would draw it for you. And in the middle of the whiteboard, I would write the word Jesus. And then I would draw a circle around the word Jesus, and that would represent his disciples. And then I would draw a circle around that circle, and that would represent his followers. And one last circle around all of it, and that would represent the crowd. And I began to see people standing all around on this diagram. And I began to ask myself, where do I stand on the diagram? And so I just wanted to find for you, for today's purposes, those three categories. And so you have the crowd. The crowd is um, people just following people. Crowds create crowds. Crowds disperse as quickly as they create. Think about a car accident for a second. As soon as the car accident happens, it attracts people. And because people are stopped and looking, more people want to stop and look, right? But within time, all those people are going to realize that they have somewhere else to be that they think is better than that car accident. And that car accident is left with the people that genuinely care about the people in the car accident. You'll be left with the paramedics, a fireman, or a police officer, and the friends and family of them. Because crowds will disperse as quickly as they come. But here's the other thing. Then there's the followers. And for the followers, you, um, these people, let's just use social media, for instance. On social media, they have this really cool button that you click follow. And just as easy as it is to click follow, it's just as easy to click unfollow. Right? And you can follow along with someone's life without ever knowing them personally. And in the Christian walk, we can click follow to Jesus for what we think he'll provide for us. But oftentimes, we'll click unfollow when we find out the cost. And we'll try to follow along with his life, but never get to know him personally. And the problem with being a follower is you will only see what they want you to see. You will only see what you set out to see. 
but you will not get to see them personally. You will not get to see them in the secret places. And then you have the disciples and those that are the closest to God, those that are right in that inner circle, the ones that have committed wholeheartedly. And here's what you need to know is dreams and destinies are conceived and birthed in private with those that are closest to God. And so when God wants to set into motion a movement, he conceives that dream and that destiny in the ones that are his disciples, not the ones that are convenience-driven Christianities called followers. He will look to his disciples, and he will put it in them, and then it'll grow. And so I want to talk to you about becoming a disciple. And I have three truths about becoming a disciple. And here's, I just want to dive into those truths for a moment. And so the first truth about becoming a disciple is answer the call. Answer the call. If we are going to become a disciple, we're going to have to answer the call. And so if you look in Matthew um, chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. It's on the screens and I'll read it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Here's what happens for a disciple. A disciple steps up and out of everything that they have created, everything they have built, everything they have been working on, and they step into all that God has created, all that God has built, all that God has been working on with them in mind. See, oftentimes we try to go to God and we try to invite him into our world. But see, a disciple doesn't invite them into our world. They go into their world. See, God is not waiting on an invitation from you. He's waiting on you to accept an invitation from him. He's not waiting on you to say, hey, here's an invitation into my life. He's asking you, will you accept his invitation and step into his life? Disciples will die to themselves and step into, their li- into someone else's life, into God's life. And the difference, by the way, is control. It's control. See, if I invite you into my home, now I'm just hypothetically, no one come knocking, but hypothetically, if I invited you into my home this afternoon, I would allow you into my kitchen and living room, and you would never know there are bedrooms in my household, ever, or a laundry room. You would never see it. And I could determine what time, when, why you come, if you're coming for a cup of coffee, or if you're coming for a birthday party. I can determine it all, and I will determine where you go in my home. But if you invite me into your home, I'll come knocking, and you say, hey, you get to determine when. You get to determine where I go. You get to determine why I come in. And oftentimes we do this with God. We try to invite him into our world, and then we try to determine where he can go in our world. But if, he, if we'll step into his world, he'll determine where we can go and walk in his world. See, God knows where he needs us to go. In Colossians 3, it says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. 
Romans 6, 4, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. See, a disciple will die. A follower, they won't die, which means they cannot be raised again. See, you cannot be raised from the dead if you are not dead. I know it sounds simple, but yet we try to do it. And we see followers, they'll try to put on clothes to try to mask the fact that they look like a Christian. But see, a disciple will die to themselves and they will be raised again as a new person with a new life. And it's all determined by their heart. I wonder sometimes if we can't get over a specific sin because we won't give up the control for it. I wonder sometimes if we look at life and we say, I'm going to control this area, and we wonder why we're not going anywhere. See, being a disciple of Christ means turning away from your self-control, from your self-centeredness, and turning your life direction and control over to God. A follower will keep control. A disciple will relinquish it. Being a disciple is not for the qualified, it's for the willing. If you look at the 12 disciples... You will not notice any common ground. You will not notice a common um, leadership potential. You won't notice a common background. You will not notice a common talent or ability. The only thing you will notice in the 12 disciples is a willing heart that was common. And God will use an ordinary people to do extraordinary things, but he can only use you if you're willing. And so will you die to yourself? Will you accept his invitation and step into what he is calling you to do? The second truth about becoming a disciple is you're going to have to count the cost. And you can't answer the call until you count the cost. And um, Matthew 4, if you remember, it said they left it at once. I think sometimes what we try to do is we try to test God. And we say, okay, God, here's my marriage. And if you can change my spouse, then I'll give you my life. Okay, God, here's my finances. And if you could put a million bucks in the bank and keep it there, even though I'm going to keep spending, then I'll, I'll give you my life. But here's the truth, and you need to know this. There's no trial run with God because there's no trial size, God. You can't test him out because he's not going to just give you a portion of him. See, there's no middle ground with God. You either accept him or you reject him, and following along with him is not acceptance. You're going to have to choose and count the cost and step out of what you think is great and into what he's calling you to. If you're still in Luke 6, you can flip over a few pages to Luke 14. Starting in verse 25, it says, A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone by else by comparison, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? 
Otherwise, you would first calculate the cost, or otherwise you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. I remember in my life personally, I, I would be what you would call a follower. I was a PK. I was a really good Christian acting wise. I was at church every week because they had free drinks and food. And I, I mean, I was good. I had the whole mask on, but I was just following along. I, 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 was, I did not want to make a commitment. And I remember I would not make a commitment because I was afraid of what I might lose, not realizing all that I would gain. But see, what I learned is until we make a commitment to him, he does not commit to us. Until you commit fully to him, he cannot commit to you. If you remember in Luke 6, the original verse, um, it said the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area. I love this because oftentimes we look at this walk with Jesus as a staircase. And the problem with that is then you could do something or you would try to do something to get to the next staircase, the next step. And also the problem with that is then you would begin to think that someone is better than you and someone is less than you. But see, that's not how the walk of Jesus works because it's by grace that you're even on the same playing field. It's a circular thing. It's a large level area. And the only reason somebody is closer to Jesus is because they have sacrificed more to get there. They have given up. They have died to themselves more to get there. I told you I'm a mom of three kids, which means my diaper bag is the size of an international luggage suitcase. And so oftentimes we will walk into a restaurant and it never fails. The hostess sees our mini circus, and she immediately finds the smallest table in the very back of the restaurant to try to contain us. I always want to tell her it's not going to work, but we'll just let her try. So we all try to go back there. Now, oftentimes, no one else in my family will have trouble getting to that table. You know how restaurants are, too. They put the table like this far apart. No one will have trouble getting there. But me and my luggage and my baby... We, we're going to hit about a billion people on the way there. And we're going to say, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. Pardon me. I'm sorry. And we'll finally get there. And now, please hear me. I'm not asking you to give up your babies or all of their needs. But what if you gave up your fear? What if you gave up your anger? What if you gave up your resentment? What if you gave up the one little bag that you think isn't all that big, but you keep knocking people over trying to get to Jesus? Would you just let it go? Because the more you let go of and the more you die to yourself, the closer you will get to Jesus. It's a daily, daily decision. It's not a one-time decision. Have you ever been at a red light? And you check your phone. Now, I know you don't do it while you're driving because that's unsafe, but, so I'm not even going to judge you. But at a red light, we all check our phones, right? 
No, some of you don't. That's fine. Anywho, us millennials check our phones only at red lights. And so you check your phone, and you look up, and the light is turning yellow, and all the cars around you are gone. Right? Here's the truth of it. That happens in our Christian walk, too. It's so easy for us to just get distracted by something, and we look up, and it seems like everyone's kept going. And whether it be an illness or a job or whether it be a marriage struggle or whatever it is, we start to look so much into that that we lose focus of the Savior. If you think of Peter, all the disciples at one point lost their footing, by the way, and fell away for a season. But think of Peter when he was walking on water. He began to get consumed with his circumstances, with his problems, with his issues, and he began to sink within those and he lost sight of his Savior. But the moment he adjusted his focus back onto Jesus. He was reunited. So the question isn't if you're going to fall away. It's not even if you have fallen away or if maybe you are falling away right now. The question is, will you come back? It's a heart issue. Will you adjust your heart to say, yes, I'm going to come back to Jesus? The third benefit or the third thing about becoming a disciple is you're going to receive the reward receive the reward. And I just want to focus on three um, aspects of things that you're going to receive in becoming a disciple. There are many blessings to becoming a disciple, but I just want to focus on three. And so the first one is invited. If you remember in Luke 6, it said when they came down from the mountain, they is plural. See, the disciples are invited to places that many people will never know about or see. The disciples will get an invitation to go up the mountain with Jesus. The followers in the crowd will meet them when they come back. The disciples will get to go to the private places with Jesus. The disciples will get to be a part of the miracles, while the followers in the crowd just get to watch. The disciples, they're going to be in the most, um, the most sacred places of Jesus's life because they have an invitation because they've committed to be a disciple. The second thing you're going to receive is you're going to be equipped. Jesus walked closely with his disciples. He would turn first to teach them, to warn them, and then he would turn to the crowds. Jesus continually was teaching his disciples, and it wasn't just by his words. It was by his presence. It was by his example. My little three-year-old daughter, she's our early bird, and so oftentimes she'll come in to our room while Ethan and I are getting ready. And one morning, Ethan was putting lotion on and because um, he needs it more than I do. And so <laughs> some of you will get it. Some of you won't. It's fine. Anywho, so he's putting lotion on, and my little Addie says, can I have some? And so Ethan says yes, and he puts them in her hand. And so Ethan goes, and he puts lotion on her arms, and we watch as Addie puts lotion on her arms. And then Ethan puts lotion on his legs, and Addie puts lotion on her pajamas. (laughs) And then he does his face, so Addie does her face. And now, if you didn't notice, Ethan is lacking um, some stuff right here. And so he puts lotion on his head. Well, if you saw in the picture, my little girl does not lack any up there. And so she puts lotion all in her hair. And we learn that little girl is learning 
not just by what our words are saying, but by what we're doing. That same little girl um, came into our bathroom one morning, and she grabbed a Q-tip, and she put it in her mouth, and she went underneath her eye. And I said, where did you learn that? She said, I watched you do it. And I was like, I don't do that. Then I was putting on my makeup, and I got a little mascara under my eye, and so I grabbed a Q-tip and got it out. (laughs) That little girl's learning. The disciples had the opportunity to learn like that. The followers in the crowd, they never had those opportunities. They never got to see Jesus just be Jesus like that. They got to see him in the moments that they chose to see him. The third thing you're going to receive is you're going to be empowered. You're going to be empowered. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of age. When you become a disciple, you place yourself under his authority, which grants you the authority to make more disciples, and you are gifted the promise that he will always be with you. If you go back to our image in the very beginning, that little diagram, Jesus in the middle turns to the disciples and he says, hey, go and make disciples. And the disciples turn to the followers and they say, why don't you quit being just a follower and become a disciple? And as you see, this process begins to flow in and out because it's a process. And because he said, hey, you can go make disciples. And then they went and that's how it grows. But we ask the question, well, how do I go and make disciples? And John, Jesus tells us that he says what he hears the father say and he does what he sees the father do. And I believe that's all he's asking us to do. He's asking us to tell our stories. He's asking us to tell what we hear and to do what we see him do. Have you ever been on a tour guide and you have a tour guide at the front? You've been on a little tour. If you were in the back of that tour and the tour guide starts doing something and the whole audience goes, ooh, ah, you are most likely going to tap the person in front of you and say, hey, what did they do? What did they do? say, right? And they're going to turn around and they're going to say, oh, this is what they did and this is what they said. And that's probably going to inspire you before the next stop to inch your way up closer to Jesus. All because they told you what they saw and what they heard. It's real simple. All you have to do is tell your story. All you have to do is tell what you're seeing the Father do and what you're hearing the Father do. And remember, it's a large level land. I think we will learn a lot more about who our God is if we'll quit looking at it as a competition or a staircase. If we'll start realizing that the community is done in circles, that the people next to you are there to help you. If you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Each one of them recorded some of the exact same situations with Jesus, but they all recorded them differently. And that is because they were all created uniquely to see things a certain way. Because you can't comprehend the fullness of God, but if we'll come together, we'll start to see more of who he is. So turn to the person next to you, even if they're sitting right next to you and say, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And let us join arms and really learn who our God is. I realize that in a room this size, there are more, there are disciples in this room. 
There are people that have sacrificed more than probably I have. And you're here today, and you've been a disciple for many years. And I started to think about that, and I was reminded of three disciples that pressed in just a little bit more. And I just want to read it to you. These three disciples, they pressed in. It was Peter, James, and John. And these three disciples got to see something that no one else got to see, and that was the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, verse 1, it says, Six days later. Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone. And they saw only Jesus. As they went back to the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And here would be my one question. Would you, like these three, press in just a little bit more to see the fullness of Jesus being Jesus in your life? That's what these disciples, in essence, got to see. They saw the fullness of who Jesus is being Jesus. And I believe that if we'll press in just a little bit more, we'll get to see the fullness of God in our lives. I want to close just by telling you my story. Um, I told you my dad is the pastor of Gateway Church, and when we started Gateway Church, I say we because I take a lot of credit for it. And so um, when we started Gateway Church, I was nine years old. Obviously, I knew a lot about church planning. And um, I just remember the moment my dad set me down and he said, hey, um, we, we feel like God's calling us to plant a church. And I'll be honest with you. I was like, why? We go to a great church. I don't see a problem. That's great. You know, and I was like, all right, well, that sounds fun. Let's do it. I like new things. Let's try it. He said, oh, we're going to move 30 miles down the road and you're going to go to a new school. I was like, oh, okay, we'll try it. I don't know. And so they decided to homeschool me in the beginning, and then that only lasted about six months because they learned I don't shut up, and so they sent me to school. And so I went to public school, and I had always been in private school before that. And what I learned is I don't really know how to make friends. I just, people come up to me, and they're my friend. And so I just kind of got caught up in the wrong crowd. And I remember I would go to school, and people would be like, so what's your father doing? I'd be like, oh, we're planning a church. And I had all this excitement until they would be like, oh, yeah, churches don't really work in this area. Um, so it's probably not going to last. And all of a sudden, doubt began to take over my life. And I began to doubt that my father had my best interest at heart. And so then one thing led to another, and pretty soon I decided I, I don't really trust my dad. And so when I would ask my dad's advice, whatever he said, I would probably try to do the opposite because I wasn't sure he really believed in me. And before I knew it, I had become a habitual liar, and I was living a double life. I was one person at school, one person after school, one person outside of my household, and a completely different person when I came around my parents and when I walked around the church. I, I was a pro-Christian. 
I mean, literally, I could have gotten a master's in acting like a Christian. I was so good at it. I knew exactly what to say, when to say it. I knew the scripture verses to pull out. I knew what prayers to say. I knew how to act like a Christian. But I was just following along so that I could fit in. I didn't really commit my life to Jesus. I didn't really make the necessary um, sacrifices to really know him personally. And before I knew it, my life had spun pretty out of control, and I was in a really dark place. And I remember I was walking around with some friends, and we were in this neighborhood that was being built because when you're in high school, apparently that's fun. And so we were walking around aimlessly, and we walked into this home that was being built to just look at the floor plan. And I remember telling them, hey, I'm not feeling so well, so why don't you all go ahead and go inside, and I'm going to just sit out here for a minute. And so they went inside, and I, I remember I laid down in this cold, empty garage, and I broke. I, I couldn't keep it together anymore. I couldn't act anymore. And I just began to cry out to God, and I said, okay, God, if you want me, you can have me. I really doubt you want me, but if you want me, you can have me. I'm all yours. I'm done. I'm done living this life. I don't want to live this way anymore. But if you don't, could you just go ahead and kill me tonight? I'm, I'm that miserable, God. I don't want to go another day without you. My friends walked out, and I quickly dried up my tears. And they said, is everything okay? And I said, oh, yeah, it's allergies. Habitual liar. I didn't know anything else to do but lie. And um, I have to be honest, I wish I could tell you that after that prayer, I immediately felt like this amazing feeling, and all of a sudden, angels came and just walked with me, and there was this halo around my head, and it didn't. It didn't happen like that for me. And the next, I was supposed to have dinner with some friends that night, and I had called to cancel because I wasn't really in the mood on putting on my act, and so I did it the next night. And they're elders of our church and friends of my parents. And so they, we had been meeting every now and then, and they would ask me about my walk with the Lord, and I would tell them a scripture verse and lie. And so this time they're asking, and I was like, oh, it's great. It's so great. They're like, where are you reading in your Bible? I was like, Jeremiah 29, 11. It was the only verse I knew. <laughs> I mean, it was it. The Lord has a plan for my life. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yes, Lord. I was lying. And so finally, he had read through me enough, and he decided he looked down at his food. And when you're living a double life, anytime there's silence, you believe you're caught. Like, you freak out. You don't like silence. So normally, you start talking about the weather or something. But I did it. I just looked down at my food, and I thought, well, hopefully, he'll say his food is cold or something, and we'll just move on. And he didn't. He looked up at me, and I looked up at him, and we locked eyes. And he said, Elaine, I need to tell you something. And he said, um, 10 years ago last night. Now, here's what you need to know about that statement. I was nine when my dad told me we were starting the church. I was 19 in the garage the night before. He said, 10 years ago last night, I had a vision of you surrounded by darkness. And you said, okay, God, if you want me, you can have me. But if you don't, I don't want to go another day without you. I lost it at the table. I couldn't, I could not go without telling him, that's me. And for the first time in my life, I felt like the Lord wanted me for me, not for who my dad was. For the first time in my life, I realized that God died for me. 
He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that I, not my family, not my dad, not my friends, no one but me, he wanted me. And I began to bawl at this table and I began to confess all my sins to these people. Talk about scary. And I told him everything. And I'll never forget it. At the end of it, I said, hey, thanks. Thanks for letting me get that all off my chest. I feel so much better. But here's the truth. You can't help me. See, I've been acting like a Christian. I've been trying, and nothing's changing. It's not working. So you can't help me. I'm just too messed up for your help. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Elaine, I can help you. But you just helped yourself by bringing it to the light. And so I linked arms with these people, and I walked whatever they told me to do. I was going to do it. I made the necessary sacrifices. One of the things they asked me to do was to tell my parents everything I had been living in. Now, we had a little negotiating going on here, but I ended up doing it. And I I really thought my parents were going to disown me. And instead, they treated me like the prodigal son and threw a party for me. And they said, welcome home. See, here's the truth. It wasn't an easy walk after I got saved. I had to say goodbye to friends and things and ways that I lived, and I I had to make some really hard choices. But I gained a whole lot more than I lost. And I'm forever changed because I decided to bring it all to the light. And I decided to not just be a follower of Jesus following along via social media. I decided to become a disciple of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.